Um, Jesus loved parties and he loved stories. And, you know, parties and stories go together. Um, he told a bunch of short stories, at least the ones that we have recorded are pretty short stories. They're called parables. Um, in length, they might, you know, tweet size to maybe twice the length of a long involved joke. So that would be the length of the Jesus stories that we have recorded. Um, These stories of Jesus are uh, only found in three of the four Gospels. They're not in the Gospel of John at all. None of his stories are in the Gospel of John, but um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are loaded with his stories. In fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, storytelling is clearly Jesus' favorite mode of, of doing God talk. So Jesus is in a long line of Jewish storytellers. Um, so there are stories like the stories that Jesus told in the Old Testament or the, what is also called the Hebrew Bible. Um, and there are stories that are told by rabbis and other kinds of uh, Jewish literature. So Jesus is in a line in a tradition of Jewish storytelling. In fact, one of the resources that Emily and I are using for this series is uh, Short Stories by Jesus by Amy Jill Levine. Amy Jill Levine is a name you want to remember. She's an Orthodox Jew who's also a feminist and a New Testament scholar. So she's not a Christian, but she's a New Testament scholar, and her branch of Judaism is Orthodox Judaism. She is brilliant, and she's written a great book on the parables. So if you want to dig into this more, you can get this book. I think there's like a reading version, a reading guide version that's shorter and more concise. Amy Jill Levine, Short Stories by Jesus, um, uh, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. So... um, Like I said, Jesus was part of a long tradition, so each of the stories that he told had echoes of earlier stories in them. And this is how stories go. Like there's like music, you know. (laughs) There's no like new song under the sun. They're just different kind of variations of one song. Um, So this movie that was out this year, A Star is Born, was like the fourth version of A Star Was Born. I think the first one was in 1937, then 52, then, I don't know, 74 with Barbara Streisand, then this latest one. And the basic story is this aging male star gives a new female talent the big break, and she rises in her career as he falls. But each new version of this uh, movie um, has a new twist. So in the first version of the movie back in 37 or whatever it is, the old male star meets the new female uh, talent in a bar and someone is kind of being you know, nasty to her and the guy kind of slugs the, the patron in the bar. In the 2018, Lady Gaga does the punching to protect uh, Bradley Cooper. So I'm thinking by the next version, finally we might have a female star giving the male new talent a break, but that maybe that's like a hundred years <laughs> off. So Jesus was um, a master of that unexpected twist in his stories. And so the twist was often the thing that had the power to like shift our perceptions. That's what a good story does. Like bad stories, they just reinforce our way of seeing the world. But good stories, there's always some twist in there that helps us see things like in a, in a new light. That's what, what stories, um, good stories do best. Today we're going to consider one of the shortest 
of Jesus' short stories. It's at the end of Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew 13 is like a a series of rapid fire parables all in a row, one after the other. And the whole thing ends with Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables. Without parables, he told them nothing. So like storytelling was super important to Jesus. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but it makes the point. So the last teeny tiny story at the end of this rapid fire sequence of short stories in Matthew 13 is this one. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. You hear that and you say, well, okay, things happen. They start and they gradually, you know, that doesn't seem like it's got a lot of kick to it. Uh No, there's some twists in this that have some real punch. So we've got some work to do. Stick with me as we do a little bit of work here to understand this. The kingdom of heaven doesn't refer to like harpland uh, up in the sky after we die, heaven. But it was the Jewish way of saying God's good realm. Um, and God's good realm in Jewish thought was understood to like intermingle with the realm in which we're like living our lives and pop up in strange ways and, and kind of hover over close to our realm. Um, it was both a realm of future possibility and it was a realm of like present, possibly realized potential, but for those who have eyes to see. And these stories that Jesus started off with, the kingdom of heaven is like, are especially about gaining eyes to see God working in the world, you know, because it's not that easy to see God working in the world. Our brains are not sort of like wired just to notice it and say, oh, I think that's God at work in the world. And so these stories of Jesus are designed to help us maybe see God working where we wouldn't otherwise see God working in the world, especially the kingdom of heaven is like story. So the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast. Yeast might be the term you'd be more familiar with. It's a you know, fermenting agent of microbes and bacteria. It's used in making beer and bread and other things. Uh, and when it's added to flour, it causes the flour to rise, right? So, but don't think in this story, don't think of that little packet of dry yeast that you might keep in the refrigerator if you make your own bread. I, I made my own bread. I put it up here. I'll show it to you later. But um, Zingerman's, we've got a master baker in our church, Aaron Gannon. He's a master baker at Zingerman's. I'm talking about Zingerman's people. This is not Wonder Bread. This is the bread that costs like $17 a loaf kind of bread. And, and Aaron was telling me that Zingerman's uses a particular strain of leaven or yeast. He called it a sourdough that um, originated in London and Zingerman's got it when they opened in 1990 or whatever, and they've kept the same strain of leaven going since that opening time, and it's in most of the bread that you eat from 
Zingerman's, and it's not a little like grains in a packet in the refrigerator kind of yeast, but it's something that's kept in a tub, and you use some when you do a batch of bread, and then they add a little flour and a little water to the leaven every day of the year, Christmas and New Year's included, to keep the thing growing and going. And, and this was the kind of leaven that happened in the Middle East during this period. It would be maybe passed on. A particular, like sourdough or leaven, might be passed on from generation to generation, mother to daughter. So it had every leaven had like a history, microbiologically speaking. Um, now, there's an important twist in the story that our uh, English translation, the one I read to you, kind of obscures, and it's important. The word in Greek is literally the woman hid. The woman hid the leaven or the yeast in the three measures of flour. It's not mixed. A lot of the translations say mixed to kind of explain to us mix what the woman was doing. But the Greek word is the original language of the New Testament. Very specific. They had a word for mix. They didn't use the word for mix. They used the word hid. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid with three measures of flour. See, in, in the New Testament, this um, notion of God's good realm, um, there's a hiddenness to it that Jesus and the early disciples talk about a lot. It starts hidden, but it's a kind of hiddenness that is meant to be revealed. Like, it's not the kind of hiddenness that you want to keep out of the public eye forever because it's, you know, dicey stuff. It's meant to be revealed, and with its revealing, no, like no one feels bad or like they're going to go to go to jail kind of thing. Jesus said, whatever is hidden will come out. What is whispered in secret now will be shouted from the rooftops later. The mystery of the kingdom was a mystery that was meant to be revealed in time. So hidden, that word hidden is here, and it's surprising because it's not the normal way that you would, the word you'd use for mixing in leaven in flour. The other twist, it, this totally goes by us, is uh, thank you, Amy Jill Levine, for pointing this out to us here. Three measures of flour. Now you're probably thinking like three cups of flour, right? Three measures of flour. I made this uh, bread. I'm very proud. I made it with uh, the help of an assistant. And uh, <laughs> I think it took three cups of flour and a little like yeast from one of those packets in the refrigerator and salt and you mix it up with water, mix it up together, wait for an hour, it rises and then you put it up together, you know, stick it up, boom. This is really good bread. <laughs> but this loaf of bread was made from three cups of flour. This, um, this bag of flour is five pounds of flour. That term, three measures of flour, refers to 40 to 60 pounds of flour. 40 to 60 pounds of flour. That's a, how much bread would say, split the difference, 50 pounds of flour produced, I asked our master baker at Zingerman's. I asked our master baker and he sent me the thing. It was pretty funny how he, he was uh, trained in botany, I think. He's a biologist there in his, and he said it's 58 large loaves of Zingerman's bread. So 
That's a lot of bread. So picture a woman in a village in the Galilee where I think Jesus was teaching in Mark, uh, Matthew 13, where in these villages not much happens in private. It's like Milan, right? Those of you from Milan, small town, like nothing happens in private in Milan, even more so in these little villages. And this woman is hiding leaven. Why is that word used? In 50 pounds of flour. So this is like a striking scene. This is not just like some ordinary thing. Something weird is happening. A a woman in a village is doing something seemingly ordinary. She's baking bread. This is like one of the things women in that period did. But with this twist, she's hiding the leaven in the bread, bread, and it's 50 pounds of flour, like she's fixing for something kind of grandiose or big, like a party, like 58 loaves of Zingerman bread probably would feed the whole village a couple times over. She's got some big plan in mind, even though she's doing this ordinary thing and there's this hidden aspect to it but maybe it's like God's good realm this nearby realm of future possibilities and present potential if we have eyes to see it is like this woman involved in this strange combination of hiddenness but potential bigness like grandiosity maybe connected to a party especially now remember this story had an original audience Right? So Jesus told this at a particular time in history, in a particular place. It would have been, I don't know, year 25 of the common era. Jesus was born six years before Christ, which is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, because the calendars, it turns out, were wrong. So he didn't, you know, he didn't, you know, get born on, you know, December 25th, year zero. It was probably 6 BC. So we're probably talking in the 20s here of what we now call the common era. And it's a Jewish setting. And so it's the the Jewish people are soaked in a trove of stories that like everyone knew. Like we have so many different stories and so many different media and you can like get you know get your certain kinds of stories and different genres but they had like a common trove of shared stories and these stories were just a part of the fabric of their lives these these stories would be told to one another at bedtime when the sun went down they'd be told around the table they would be told at parties these stories were written down by their scribes they were studied by their rabbis who offered varied interpretations and argued about the interpretations of the stories and and these were stories of a people under foreign domination so they treasured their stories as a way to you know save their like communal identity which the Romans were trying to erase and homogenize into like one global empire with their stories being the ruling stories. So this stories were like a political act also in this period as they always are. This unexpected bit about the three measures, 50 pounds, would have triggered to the Jewish ears communal memories of another woman, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the Abraham, the founder of the Abrahamic faiths. Abraham and Sarah, they're sitting in the heat of the day in Genesis. They're probably exhausted. 
Um, this comes after the rescue of Abram's nephew Lod, who was kidnapped by local warlords. So, you know, Abraham was like a kind of a local warlord himself, and he got up a band of people and armed them and went off to save Lot. And then this is after the, the, the intense rivalry between Sarah and her slave Hagar. Remember, Sarah couldn't conceive, and so she gave Abram her slave Hagar, and Hagar did conceive and gave birth to Ishmael, but it wasn't like the, the heir and the way Abraham wanted an heir, and they were fighting cats and dog between Sarah and, and um, Hagar. So things are not like at the peak of family life. This is not like a situation comedy that you'd have. Just then, three strangers travelers appear and they're later thought to be God in some kind of human form and two assistants or two angels in Jewish tradition. Abraham sensing maybe the mysterious divine presence that is like there but he can't really put words to it scrambles to his feet he calls to Sarah in the tent visitors and then turning to the visitors he says let me bring a little bread for you a little bread then he calls back to Sarah in the tent, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Three measures, 50 pounds. It's like something big is going on, but something is also hidden at the same time throughout the encounter. According to custom of that period, Abraham was the one out there hosting, entertaining the guests, while Sarah, being woman folk, was in the tent preparing the food, listening. I went to Kashmir several years ago, very traditional culture, and the men would do all the socializing with themselves, and literally the women would be like sequestered away. You, just, you barely saw women walking, especially by themselves, out in the street, and maybe a woman would come and bring you a cup of tea, but it was the men who were the social connectors in that culture, and this is uh, probably more like the culture that Abraham and Sarah were in. In. And so Abraham's out there with these three divine visitors. And during the meal, they tell Abraham that his wife in her old age will bear a son. They're in their 90s, I think, at this point. And from the tent where she's listening in, right? Of course, she's listening in. What's going on? Sarah laughs. They hear the laugh, the visitors do, and you laughed, and they kind of like jokingly rebuke her, and then like this is like, oh, the beginning of like this big promise of, you know, you, your descendants will be like the grains of sand, and, and something big is happening, but it's hidden. Maybe Jesus is saying to his Jewish hearers, something like this is happening now. The good realm of God is showing up like this. Remember, there are many like thises, though. So this is only one of the like this of parables. So now, what's our task? Our task is to ponder, how does a story like this, understood as we're understanding it, remind us of things we see around us now that might be like actually God at work, only we need eyes to see that. How is God's good realm like this woman who took leaven, hid it in 50 pounds of flour, 
like through ordinary circumstances, maybe perhaps extraordinary consequences are afoot. Even now, hidden things are happening that will later come to light and might be part of a big party unfolding. So I heard a story on This American Life. Lisa Ruby put me onto this story while I was working on this parable, and it sounded a lot like this. It's how the American Psychiatric Association, psychiatrists, doctors, MDs, whose specialty is mental illness, how American Psychiatric Association took homosexuality um, off the list of pathological disorders in 1973. So just a few years early, say 1970, it's estimated that 98% of the psychiatrists in the United States saw homosexuality as a pathology. And it was viewed as a pathology that had like profound effects on the whole personality of the person who suffered from this pathology, a disease. It was a huge source of the stigma on gay people because it brought the full, like, you know, emerging authority of modern science to bear on the experience of being gay. Gay psychiatrists had to be in hiding or they would be banned from practice. So this is a different, this is in the early 1970s. I was going to nursing school in the 19, early 1970s. Something big, though, happened when some different individuals and small groups who didn't know that the other individuals or groups existed did things that were at first hidden from view but only later came to light. And this, uh, this American Life tells the story of it. Um, the story of this change is a, a story involving many different actors or players. Um, they start out in various forms of hiddenness, all of them behind the scenes, kind of like Sarah, or the woman hiding the yeast in the dough. They don't know that there are others. They mostly feel isolated, alone, maybe just ordinary, a little bit insignificant. They're not very hopeful of big changes. As these individuals or small groups start to take tentative, sometimes brave, risky steps, they end up having like more impact than they anticipated because they discover after all they weren't so alone. So instead of like, a, I was talking to Aaron about yeast and I said, well, does, when the yeast grows, and he said, no, don't use the word grow referring to yeast. Multiply is the word with yeast. I'm like, Yes, sir. Master, master baker at Zingerman's. That <laughs> uh, it, it multiplies. So there's some kind of multiplication effect that this American life is telling the story of. So who are the disparate, the different players in this story? Well, different groups. It's the story of some gay activists who are meeting in San Francisco, and they're kind of plotting to disrupt the next APA, American Psychiatric Association Conference, which was held there in 1970. They had no other access to the, these powerful people, so they were going to disrupt the meetings, and they're figuring out how to do that. Can we get away with that? How would we do it? It's a story of a group of psychiatrists called the Gay PA. <laughs> they were gay psychiatrists who were in hiding. 
And, and as they tell the story, the gay psychiatrists themselves bought the story that their being gay was a pathology. So they were in hiding, but they kind of found each other, and they would tend to meet at a gay bar um, during the APA conferences. So there's this group called the Gay PA. It's the story of there's one brave gay psychiatrist who gives a talk at a, pro a professional conference, and he gives the talk in disguise, literally in costume. He has a Richard Nixon mask on, and he uses some kind of device to, to hide his voice, and he bears witness to what it's like to be a gay psychiatrist under this stigma of the um, pathological listing in the diagnostic manual of homosexuality. There's a group called the Young Turks. These are like younger up-and-coming psychiatrists who think the old guard is just like super conservative and they're all just white men and gray flannel suits and the young Turks, they want to kind of take over the APA and they start meeting in a kitchen, plotting how they can get, you know, involved in different committees. It's the story of a psychologist, a woman in California who realized she had a, a, a client who was gay, who was not conflicted about being gay, who was happy to be gay, a younger gay man. And she said, are there other men like you? And he said, yeah, I've got lots of friends who are like me. And she decided to do a study. And she used like 30 or 40 gay men who were not conflicted about their sexuality and gave them a battery of tests and gave 30 straight men a battery of tests and showed the results of both groups in a blind uh, study way to three like psychiatrists and said, you tell me which one of these, uh, which of these in this group are gay. They, could, they couldn't tell. The, 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 the psychological um, profile or the, the adjustedness of the gay men was the same as the straight men. So the only pathology that was common to the gay men uh, uh, was um, male pattern maleness, <laughs> which is just its own thing. So it's not really a pathology, it's just a thing. So all of these things are happening behind the scenes, unconnected to each other. Each actor, each of these groups who are thinking about, man, it'd be great if things could change, are pessimistic about the prospect of change, but they're, they're like taking little steps in, in their small, ordinary ways. And isolated, hidden act, as they begin to act, some kind of fermentation effect starts to kick in. In 1972, there's a gay activist named Ronald Gold. Remember that name, Ronald Gold. He disrupts a meeting of the APA, and he angers Dr. Robert Spitzer. Remember that name, Ronald Gold and Dr. Robert Spitzer. Spitzer um, and Gold, after the disruption, have a heated exchange in the, you know, after the thing happens. And Gold learns that Dr. Spitzer is on the committee that decide what goes into the diagnostic manual as a disease. And he says, let some of us gay activists come to your committee and give testimony to your committee. Spitzer thinks the guy's full, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really believe what he's saying, but he's intrigued, he's interested, he lets him come with some of his um, friends to give testimony when the next time the committee meets. They kind of strike up a relationship. By this time, there are now a few psychiatrists who are beginning to 
question the prevailing orthodoxy because this new research is starting to matriculate through. Gay men are just as well adjusted as straight men. It's 1973 now. There's now an open forum at the general session of the American Psychiatric Association, and it's a, it's a well-planned-out debate on this question. It includes the old guard who have their own view of homosexuality as pathology. It includes some activists, and it includes some doctors who are beginning to question the prevailing approach. And they have a debate, and they have a whole like day set aside for this. This time, the gay activist, Ronald Gold, gives a speech to the entire American Psychiatric Association in 1973. The title of the speech is to die for. It's you're making us sick. <laughs> it's like, like by calling it a pathology, you're making life worse for us. And now we have our own like issues because of this oppression that you're exacting on us. Later that night, Gold is invited, the activists, to join the gay PA. <laughs> They're meeting at a local gay bar. They're still in hiding. This is not at all res re resolved. Without asking, Gold invites Spitzer, Dr. Robert Spitzer, who's a straight man, he's, but he's the head of this powerful committee who's still undecided on the issue. Spitzer doesn't really believe there are gay psychiatrists in the APA, so Gold says, well, come with me. I'm going to go to this thing. I've been invited to this thing. Gold brings Spitzer to the bar, and Spitzer sees all these actually prominent psychiatrists who are at this gay bar in charge of this big institute and that big university medical center of psychiatry. But the gay psychiatrists are like, who invited Spitzer in here? Because it's like, it's a form of outing these gay psychiatrists who could lose their jobs if it were found out that they were gay. And so they're like talking to Ron Gold saying, what are you doing bringing him there? Well, he kind of wants to a little force them out a little bit, you know, Ron Gold, the activist. And so there's kind of like a hubbub going on and Spitzer starts seeing all these like prominent psychiatrists who are gay. He starts asking questions about homosexuality. So it's like only questions that a straight person would ask. But he's asking all these questions about homosexuality. So it's kind of a hubbub just then. A young man in an army uniform walks into the bar. He's surprised. Turns out he's a young psychiatrist who was so moved to hear Ron Gold's talk, the gay activist talk, you're making us sick talk. He was so moved by that talk earlier in the day, he said to himself, he's straight, I need to, I need to meet some gay people. I'm going to go find me a gay bar and go in and see what it's like. He just happens to stumble into this gay bar where the gay PA is meeting and Ron Spitzer is there and Ron Gold who gave this fabulous talk, you're making us sick. He walks in there and it's so, because he's pricked in his conscience. He's like, he's sympathetic. And when he sees all these gay men in the gay bar, he bursts into tears. He, I mean, he just starts sobbing. 
And you have Ron Gold, the gay activist, Robert Spitzer, the head of this committee that is a powerful committee in the APA who's straight, undecided on the gay question, and, um, and the head of the gay PA <laughs> together, and they're consoling this young army psychiatrist who's just overwhelmed and sobbing sobbing about all the harm possibly that's being done by by psychiatrists to to gay people what have we been doing spitzer the head of this powerful committee is so moved by this experience he decides then and there that he's going to go back and rewrite the diagnostic code and change it and i think within six months the apa adopts his change. So you've got all these different players operating at first behind the scenes, hoping for a big change, just doing their little part until their isolated efforts start emerging and these actors start to converge and something bigger starts happening. Like the woman. <laughs> hiding the yeast in 50 pounds of flour. So as I'm listening to this American life story about the change in the APA, I'm like, oh my gosh, we are at the same like hinge of history decades later in the story of Christianity having its old orthodoxy, its old readings of scripture challenged. You know, it's a church here, it's a church there, it's like part of a denomination here, part of a denomination there, maybe. Um, it's groups emerging like Liz Dyer's group, the Mama Bears. Mama Bears, some of you are watching, you are a big part of this, behind the scenes, working on this stuff, like feeling totally isolated in your conservative church, discovering Liz Dyer in her Facebook group, joining the secret hidden Facebook group and supporting one another and, and gaining your voice and gaining courage and taking little steps to come out realizing that you're not alone or the, or the Boy Erased movie comes out and telling the story of the ex-gay movement and, and what's been going on with that and, and things are happening. And by the way, the LGBT equality movement was started by a hidden group of gay activists in the 1950s. What were they doing? They were watching the brave African-Americans who were confronting Jim Crow in the early civil rights movement. And they were trying to learn from those African-American early protesters. And, and I would say, may it please God, that white Christians who, you know, wake up, I consider myself among them, um, who wake up to the mistreatment of LGBT people, because we've had this intense kind of experience, that we become better allies to our people of color, friends and neighbors, you know, because we're learning like what it's like to go through something like this. So we have a set of tools that we can apply to, well, there's actually some bigger things that have been going on in this realm of oppression and scapegoating for a long time. So it's like, let us be a yeast hidden in a big batch of flour to prepare for this big party called the kingdom of heaven emerging God's good realm. Um, we're going to have a little reflection time now. So um, we take a two or three minute period at the end of the sermon.
just to kind of settle down, center down. Uh, and I'll do a little guided uh, meditation for you. If you like the meditation, go with it. Otherwise, you can, your interior space is, you're in charge of it. So use this time as you will. But just two or three minutes. And what I'm going to suggest, I'm going to just tell you in advance. I'm going to ask you to, um, after just relaxing a moment, um, to try to um, maybe identify an issue in your life where you have felt alone or isolated. And like you, you wish there were other people who understood what you were going through or a difficult aspect of your experience. Wouldn't it be great to have some other people who are kind of on your side? I think this is something that applies to all of us. You know, we all need allies, right? We all need people in our life who are for us in some area that's difficult for us for whatever reason in our lives. So I'm, I'm going to first invite you to just kind of picture something like that in your own life. And I'm going to do a guided meditation where I'm going to ask you to picture yourself in a dark room and then light a candle in the middle of the room and begin to see actual people in your life who are allies or supporters. You know, so often we focus on the, on the negative and we, our brain misses like the people who are there to be allies to us or supporters to us or people on our side. I'm going to ask you to focus your attention on them. So let's begin just by maybe taking two or three or four deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. Get yourself comfortable. And then just take a moment to identify or even name maybe that area of struggle in your life where it's like, man, I really need some supporters, some allies. It'd be great to have some allies in this thing that I'm dealing with. What would that be for you? And now I just invite you to picture yourself sitting comfortably in a, in a room that's pretty dark. What is, would it feel like to sit in a room that's pretty dark? You really can't see anything in the room. Let's take a look around the room to see what you can't see in that dark space. And now you notice that there is a candle on a little table right in front of you and a match and you light the candle. And just picture yourself doing that. And then with the candle lit and you've got a little more light and you start to notice some people who are actually on your side and just for the next 30 seconds minute just take a look at those people notice 
their faces sitting in the room with you, for you, on your side. Who are those people? About 30 more seconds. now we just offer this prayer remembering the opening of the gospel of John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made in him was light and the light was the light of all people the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it we thank you Lord for being the light in our darkness. And we pray that our eyes would be open to what it is that that light enlightens in our circumstances today, now. What are those things that represent your, maybe sometimes hidden aid and comfort and help and consolation? Give us eyes to see those things, hearts to be grateful. Amen.